Fourth Estate presents The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on a crisp walk through midwinter in its cold, glistening splendour, all the way up to Christmas Day. Along the path, there'll be recipes for some of your festive favourites and some new ideas too, to excite your palate in the cold months. You'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and a hundred essential recipes for midwinter, as well as some new content that we've recorded here at my home in North London. In this episode, we'll continue our tour of Nuremberg and take in the magnificence of the city's Christmas windows. I'll explain my deep, lifelong love of the cold months and give you my recipe for traditional mince pies to welcome in December. 3rd of December. Mince pies on the shop windows of Nuremberg. The Christmas windows of Nuremberg are cluttered with the toys I never had. A tower of painted toy soldiers in hats. A bandsman's cap in green and gold a bearskin you want to stroke, a shiny pointed pickle huber, a marching drummer with braided red jacket and golden chin strap, a barman in a gingham shirt with a bowler and frothing pilsner, a bearded man in an Amish hat, a mouse in a crown and a mushroom with a shining red cap. It occurs to me that a mushroom probably always wears a cap. A second window of hand-painted characters, a white-suited doctor with a stethoscope around his head, a witch, a train guard with a whistle and a blue apron chef, a snowman with a carrot for a nose, another selling schneeball for 50 cents. The colours are as bright and solid as Father Christmas's coat. There are dolls with plaits and dead eyes, a feathered Tyrolea hut, a flower dirndl, a knitted doll in a red pixie hood and a hound in a Santa suit. The third window, a cage of shimmering feather-tailed birds, a golden canary, a turquoise kingfisher and a pure white swan. There are scarlet birds and silver ones, a gold and blue macaw and a peacock with a saffron and royal green train. No robin. Some are on golden threads, but most are on metal clips with a spring, the sort that you can never quite get in the right position on the branch. We move up a notch a window of wooden set scenes, whole worlds at which to stare and dream, vignettes in which to disappear, a red ferris wheel with green seats and gilded spokes, a child-filled merry-go-round with waving parents and a naughty dog, a wooden house with a pointed roof, its windows ablaze while children build a snowman outside, a carousel of horses on poles, each with a harness of red and blue or rust and gold, Scarlet-coated riders bobbing up and down under striped awnings. At 400 euros, you expect detail, care and craftsmanship. And that is what you get. You get a story in which to climb, a snow-covered Narnia of your own. These are the windows I never had as a child, the windows I dreamed of, to gaze at wide-eyed in awe and wonderment. The windows I knew from another life. 3D fairy stories set in snow. There are no Scalectrix cars to crash or trains to derail, no screens to touch or consoles to turn, just scenes into which to climb, 
secret places in which to make up your own stories. You could do the windows of Nuremberg by day, start in the shops near the Christkinder market, but to do that is to miss the details. The faces, the expressions, and, it must be said, the darker side. Toys, especially wooden ones with hand-painted faces, come to life only at night, when they think we're all asleep. It is then, and only then, when the sky is dark and the spotlights have no competition, that you spy the tiny differences, the life that the painters have put into each one. There is nothing churned out in a Chinese factory here. Each piece is hand-painted, the characters they send out into the world to have adventures with their new young friends. Me and the Mince Pie My life is chock-a-block with rituals. The way I light a candle on the kitchen table before I sit down to write on a winter's morning. Choosing a radio programme to listen to, something from Best of the Week, while the coffee drips through the filter mid-morning. The fuss I make over the pre-dinner drink that one observer suggested was akin to a monk embarking on a Japanese tea ceremony. I'm sorry, but there is just something perfect about that end-of-day drink in the right, chilled glass. Olives in a dish that quietly flatters their colour, with a second, smaller one for the stones. And never more so than at Christmas, when my rituals come by the sackful. Christmas Eve inevitably starts with me unfolding a paper printout, fading and a little dog-eared, an article Jeanette Winterson wrote for The Times about making mince pies. When you are satisfied that the pastry is cold, get out your Punch and Judy rolling pin. I read it every year, before getting out my own rolling pin. It's not Punch and Judy, but near enough. Carols are playing, the table is dusted with flour, and the pastry cutters are having their annual outing. This is the day I relish almost more than any other, and in part because it's the day I get to make mince pies. As sweet food goes, I would rather eat a diminutive, sugar-dusted mince pie than almost anything else, more than lemon meringue or treacle tart, plum pie or gooseberry crumble. Well, maybe not more than that last one but certainly more than a French apple tart fiend or a slice of bread and butter pudding. A mince pie carries with it everything I hold dear about this time of year. It is an edible symbol of the generosity, the kindness and the festive spirit. In that tiny morsel lies the very spirit of the season. There is no real religious significance, though one could, at a push, think of the pie as a manger, its sweet contents as the Christ child. Lift the lid. A glossy paste of currants and raisins, brown sugar and cinnamon, mixed spice and citrus zest. There is candied peel and the comfort of Bramley apples and suet. A preserve, sweet, spicy, fruity, whose history goes back to the Middle Ages and whose smell is redolent of the happiest moments of my childhood. The crust. Short crust, sweet crust, rough puff, or puff. There is no traditional answer, so it becomes a matter of choice. But let us go back a bit. The early pies were savoury, the pastry made with lard rather than butter. As someone who will take any opportunity to eat any part of the pig, I often swap some of the butter for lard. Using a sweet pâté brisé, the French sweet short crust, is surely pushing the sugar bag too far, 
puff and rough puff doughs introduce a welcome lightness and is what I would use if my handiwork is to be eaten the day it is made. Neither keep well. Even stored in a biscuit tin, the crust tends to toughen up overnight. Rolled thinly and eaten no more than an hour or two after baking, a puff pastry mince pie can be exquisite, warm and crisp and buttery and as fragile as a butterfly. My go-to crust is made with half butter and half lard and no sugar. I roll the dough as thinly as I dare and ensure that the bottom is always slightly thicker than the top. As good as thin pastry is, we must never forget, it also has a job to do. Many a mince pie is eaten without a plate. And now a recipe. A jolly good mince pie. A classic simple mince pie, devoid of bells, whistles and creative meddling. The pastry is a rich but workable short crust. It won't collapse in the carol singer's mittens. The pies themselves will stand or fall by the quality of the mincemeat. Go for broke. The little darlings are at their most delicious when eaten warm. Baked a day or more before, they reheat nicely. Makes 18 small mince pies. Unsalted butter, 40 grams. Lard, 40. Plain flour, 150 grams. An egg yolk, a little cold water. Good quality mincemeat, 375 grams. And some icing sugar for dusting. You will also need a 12-hole tartlet tin, each hole measuring 6 by 2 centimetres deep. It's best to bake the pies in a batch of 12, then a second of six. Cut the butter and lard into small pieces and rub it into the flour with your fingertips until you have what looks like coarse, fresh breadcrumbs. If you do this in the food mixer, it'll take a matter of seconds. Add the egg yolk, then mix briefly with just enough water to bring it to a smooth dough. You'll probably need only one or two tablespoons. Bring the dough together into a firm ball, then knead it gently on a floured board for a couple of minutes until it softens. Reserve half of the dough, then roll the remainder out thinly. Set the oven at 200 degrees centigrade, gas mark six. Using cookie cutters or the top of an espresso cup, cut out 18 discs of pastry. There may be a tiny bit left over. Place 12 discs of the pastry in the tartlet tins, reserving six for the second batch, smoothing them up the sides so the edges stand very slightly proud of the tin. Fill each one with a dollop of mincemeat. A level tablespoon is probably all you'll get into them, unless you have especially deep tins. Be generous. Roll out the reserved pastry with any leftover trimmings and make a further 18 discs of pastry, reserving six again. Slightly dampen each of these round the edge with cold water, then lay them over each tart and press firmly to seal the edges. Using the point of a small kitchen knife, cut a small slit in the centre of each pie and bake for 20 minutes until golden. Let them cool for a few minutes, then slide them out of their tins with a palette knife and serve warm, dusted with icing sugar. Repeat with the remaining pastry discs and mincemeat. Fourth of December, fire. 
coldest winters. Some people remember summers, a holiday in Tuscany, a lunch outdoors that turned into dinner and ran long into the darkness, a picnic on the beach, or the summer afternoon they lost their virginity. I remember winters. I can trace my love of the cold months to one particular day, the winter of 1962-3 to to be precise, late afternoon, just as the sun went down and the sky slipped from apricot to scarlet to lavender. I was playing outside, a huge lump of snow that we had rolled down the silent street, getting larger and larger, until we could roll it no further, and which I then flattened to form a counter. I was playing shop, in duffel coat and mittens, with the food fashioned out of snow, a vast truckle of cheese from which I cut wedges to sell, the cake, of course, and snow sweets the size of pebbles. There is a little shopkeeping in the family's blood. In Victorian times, we had a dairy in Birmingham. My friends bought the snow cakes and then hurled them at one another as snowballs. I remember my mother bringing me in when she realised that every other kid had gone in for tea and I was still there, tending my snow shop. The winter of 1962-3 to was the coldest since 1895. I was six. It had been a particularly foggy late autumn, and snow first arrived on December the 12th. The heaviest snow came on Boxing Day, and by the 29th had drifted in some places to 20 feet deep. We had 18 inches in Staffordshire. Villages were without power. People were stranded in their cars. The sea froze in parts of Kent, and temperatures as low as minus 19 were recorded the lowest since 1814. I can't ever remember having as much fun as I did that winter, leaping into snowdrifts on my walk to school, building a snowman, carrot nose, lumps of coal for eyes, with my brother in the back garden, coming home soaked and freezing from having lost another snowball fight. It's no wonder that modern winters are something of a disappointment. In truth, Britain has had very few truly cold winters, especially in the south of the country. The coldest on record was 1684, the year the Thames froze over for two months and a fair was held on its frozen waters. The coldest of the last century have been 1940, 1947, 1963 and 1979. Daily meteorological records began in the 17th century, Britain's coldest include 1739-40, to 40, when the snow started on Christmas Day and lasted to February the 17th, with temperatures as low as minus nine. London, usually one of the least snowy areas of the country, recorded 39 days of snow, two full months where the average temperature was less than zero degrees were recorded. 1836 was one of the coldest, but also a winter of floods, avalanches and stranded rail passengers. 1927-8 to eight was a white Christmas and was one of the heaviest snowfalls of the 20th century. In 1933, 48 hours of continual snowfall were recorded. The North, which takes the brunt of winter weather, did so especially in 1940 and was particularly cold. Four feet of snow fell in Sheffield, and the Thames froze for the first time since 1880. An ice storm hit the south 
on January the 28th. The long winter of 1947 began in late January and lasted until mid-March. Many villages around the country were snowed in and thousands were cut off for days. Not especially cold, but a good one for snow, with not a single area of the country that didn't record snowfall from January the 22nd to March the 17th. Many snowfalls measured 60 centimetres or more, with Scotland recording drifts of 7 metres. At one point, the armed forces were brought in to rescue people. 1952-3 saw the highest winter loss of life this country has ever known during peacetime. The smog in London accounted for 12,000 deaths. 1962-3 is still the coldest I remember, and the coldest weather for 200 years. The sea froze in some parts of the country, and villagers were cut off. Animals froze in their fields because the farmers couldn't gain access. A temperature of minus 22 degrees centigrade was recorded in Braemar in Scotland. The mean maximum temperature in January was minus two, making it the coldest month since the 1800s. The Guardian reported that a farm in Dartmoor was cut off by snowdrifts for 66 days and the owners had to be rescued by troops. It wasn't until March that the temperatures climbed above minus five degrees. Glasgow recorded its first white Christmas since the 30s. Fire. Fire has always been at the heart of it all. The place where everyone gathered for warmth and for safety. Flames to warm us from the cold, but also to ward off danger. Flames to keep wild animals at bay. Flames to sit around and read, a place for conversation. Now a real fire is a rare and wonderful thing. It's hard work, the carrying of logs, the lighting of kindling and taking the ashes out, but nothing can match it. A fire is a magical thing. There are those who worship them literally. Zoroastrians, some Vedic branches of the Hindu religion, the Romans and the Greeks have all at some time worshipped the fire or the hearth. The purity of the fire, its ability to render food from the inedible to the edible and the protection it affords are all worthy of worship. I have two fires burning at home. On a winter's night, the room changes the instant they are lit. Bricks and mortar transcend from house to home. The fire lit, the mood of the room changes too. Shoes are removed, feet are put up on the sofas, we tuck ourselves up. In truth, after a day's work, we sleep too. Friends joke that within ten minutes of me lighting the fire, they're asleep, cosy. There is much to watch in the flames. We say they dance, and with good reason. The flames flicker and wave, float and soar as the mood takes them. Sometimes the embers are even more beautiful than the flames. I could watch them for hours. We shouldn't ignore the ashes. You can use a small amount of them on the garden, but they should be ashes from wood, not coal, and shouldn't be used near blueberries, azaleas or potatoes, which don't like a high pH. Burned wood doesn't contain nitrogen, but it is a source of potassium, phosphorus and calcium, useful for raising the pH of a soil if it is low. 
by which I mean below pH 6. There is a little Japanese onsen I visit. It takes a while to get there, as there is no rail connection. The wooden building is hidden in the hills and is probably my favourite place on earth. It is undeniably beautiful, with its lovingly polished wooden floors and moss-covered garden. What sets it firmly as the place where I want my ashes scattered is the constant scent of smoke. It filters through the house, but also through the gardens. Little trails of blue-grey cross your path as you walk along the stone paths or warm the wooden arbours where you sit and read. What we burn affects the smell of the fire and also the heat it gives. My parents burned coal and logs. I've never liked the smell of a coal fire, preferring to use logs. You need kindling to light a fire. Thin, crisp sticks of wood that are, crucially, dry. A few sheets of newspaper rolled into loose balls tucked among them, and then some larger logs to burn slowly. The reason most fires go out is because the logs are too large or there is not enough air. A loose arrangement of scrunched paper, kindling and small logs, no thicker than your arm, is a good start. Newspaper lights more easily than the paper from glossy magazines. My stepmother used to roll up a newspaper, then tie a loose knot in each roll. Worked a treat. A taper, if you have such a thing, is better, safer than a match or a lighter. Although my parents and grandmother kept a fire going almost constantly in the hearth, the idea is not a practical one for most of us. A wood-burning stove is one answer. The flames hidden behind glass, they can be left burning safely while you're out. They're clean and easy to deal with. They are the heart of many a Scandinavian and Japanese home and are becoming popular in Britain too. A wood burner has a constant glow, the low golden flame that greets and warms and toasts us. It's my next project. Fire has always been precious, particularly when it was the only form of heating or cooking. Therefore taxable. In 1662, on May the 19th, a hearth tax was introduced, where householders had to pay two shillings for each hearth. Payment was twice a year, once at Michaelmas and again at Lady Day, March the 25th. The poor and charitable institutions were exempt. The tax was abolished by William III in 1689. Good for him. For me, the cold months are the best of times, and at the heart of those months lies Christmas. 5th of December, Krampusnacht, and a cake that smells of sugar and spice. The fallen leaves remain in crisp piles under the chestnut trees outside the house. No one sweeps them up. Instead, we leave them to break down into a chocolate brown loam. I planted narcissi under them once, but the bulbs mysteriously moved house to further down the road, where they bloom, laughing at me each spring. A branch is broken off in the wind, and I pick it up and bring it into the house. I like the bare branches of winter, their brittle twigs and lichen-covered bark. They're more sculptural once the leaves are off and look handsome in the large, heavy-based vase. You sometimes need a rock in the bottom to stop the weight of the branch pulling the container over. In a week or two, the tips of the branches will be hung with wooden decorations on fine cotton. 
laser-cut stars mostly, the colour of driftwood. An idea I spotted in a candlelit window in Gothenburg last winter. There are other foraged woods in the house too. A mossy stick from the Rabinia in the back garden. Two or three long branches of spruce. The odd lump of wood with peeling bark the colour of a cinnamon stick, picked up from the park. I value these as much as any bunch of flowers. All the more in a frosty morning light, when their shapes have a haunting beauty against the white lime render of the kitchen walls. I settle the branch into its new home in the hall, where it will stay until I accidentally snap the finer twigs off and it shifts from elegant relic to sad stump. I bake, a second version of a cake I've been attempting for some time, a chocolate cake with the same spicing that appears in Lebkuchen. My plan is to ice the finished cake with dark chocolate and perhaps a few cubes of sticky preserved ginger. I rarely cook with chocolate, preferring crisp dark squares to a slice of cake, but the idea appeals when it meets praline or spices. This time, the cake is a success, less gooey than before. I've rather had enough of gooey chocolate cakes, with mysterious back notes of cinnamon and mace, ginger and spice. I'm really rather pleased with it. A chocolate spice cake that smells of fairy tales. Krampusnacht. After dinner, I curl up in a chair in front of the fire, reading. The wind settles into a haunting moan. Shadows flicker. Candles gutter in the draught. I pull a blanket over me and read about Krampus. Tonight is Krampusnacht, the feast of the legendary Krampus. A Santa Claus for naughty children, he is thoroughly menacing. Part goat, part demon, hairy with huge curling horns, a long tail and a terrifying tongue. Long a figure of folklore in many parts of Europe. Rather than bringing gifts to good children, he punishes those who have misbehaved during the previous year. The legend of Krampus has been celebrated for centuries in many Alpine towns and villages, particularly in Bavaria. He is known throughout Germany, Austria, Hungary, Croatia and the Czech Republic. Much less so here and in the United States. On this night, folk who dress up as the mythological horned creature will come lumbering through town, waving flaming torches to a cacophony of bells and crashing of chains. In reality, it is an event probably more suitable for adults than kids. Krampus often carries Rutan, a bunch of birch twigs with which to swat children. Occasionally, he will appear with a basket on his back for carrying away the particularly naughty ones. Krampus scares the pants off me. Not the silly American film of the same name, but the rituals that come to life in alpine villages on this night every year. But then I've always enjoyed being slightly scared. As a child, spooky fairy tales, ghost stories and horror films were always high on my list. It's easy to enjoy being scared when you are tucked up in the safety of your own home, probably less so when you meet Krampus in real life. Should Krampus turn up at your home tonight, and I sincerely hope he doesn't, for he is very, very scary, it is best to offer him some schnapps and perhaps a piece of cake. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater.
The Christmas Chronicles Notes, Stories and 100 Essential Recipes for Midwinter is available now in hardback, audio and ebook and published by Fourth Estate. Join me again in our next chapter as we delve further into the season and I share some more recipes and wintered stories. Mm-hmm.